The parable of the Good Samaritan. This definitely falls in the category of nice parable stories that everyone knows, but people haven't really read in a very long time. Uh, you'll often see uh, <laughs> Samaritan hospitals. Um, we even have like Good Samaritan laws. I think one of the weirdest applications I've seen was uh, Good Samaritan shoots robber in gas station. So I think we've definitely extrapolated quite a ways from the actual parable. Now, let's actually go to it. Uh, Luke 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in your law? How do you read it? And the man answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered right. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay, so what's the context here? So we have a lawyer standing up to put him to the test. Okay, so the lawyer is trying to justify himself. And he asks a question, you know, what do I need to do for e eternal life? Which is a really important question. And Jesus asked him, okay, what do you find in the law? Like, you're a lawyer, you should know this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. I mean, that's a pretty dang good answer. Like there's what, 153 specifications of the law. I mean, there's all these different particular things, but the lawyer gets it right. It's loving God and loving neighbor. Okay, but here's where the parable comes in. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Now, this is a really, really important question, if, if you're thinking about it. So who are the neighbors of the chosen people of Israel? Uh, is it their brother Jew? Is it Israelites who've been scattered? I mean, it's, it's anachronistic even in Jesus's day to talk about Israelites. There were no Israelites because the Israelites were the northern tribes that were scattered, as we'll see a little bit later. So who exactly are neighbors to the Jews? And if they're not neighbors, if you don't need to love your neighbor as yourself, then in a certain sense, the law is just for the Jews. The messianic hope is really just for the Jews. I mean, it's, it's kind of a nationalistic ethnic hope. So then we have the parable. So the parable of the Good Samaritans in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, okay, now we have the story. Now, once again, on the face of it, people just reduce the story to helping someone out. Um, but I think there's a lot of symbolism going in here. So why does Jesus tell this parable 
to illuminate uh, who the neighbor is. Okay, let's just get into it. So we have a man, and he, notice where he's going from. He's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you remember in the Old Testament, what does Jericho really represent? But uh, it's the city of sin. I mean, it's, it's the place where uh, Joshua and the Israelites had to conquer, you know, with, with the trumpets and the trumpet blasts and all that. So he's going from Jerusalem, which is the city of David. It's the holy city, the holy city, Mount Zion, true pole of the earth. And he's going to Jericho. So he's going from, let's say, like the holiest place. Let's say he's going from Rome to Las Vegas. Like these places have significance. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's already intending to go down to this worst place. And what happens? But he falls among robbers who do three things to him. They strip him, beat him, and depart, leaving him half dead. So then we have three people. There's a number of triads here. So we have him being stripped, beaten, and left half dead. We have a priest who passes him by, a Levite who passes him by, and then a Samaritan. And then we also have three words associated with the Samaritan. The Samaritan came to where the the, the man who had been hurt was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So it's another three. He came to where he was, saw where he was, had compassion, sorry, came to where he was, when he saw him, had compassion, and then bound up his wounds. Set him on his own beast, took him to an inn, and he gave two denarii to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay. So how do we draw this significance out? So I'm going to draw from St. Augustine's interpretation of this, and it's an allegorical interpretation. That basically what Jesus is doing by doing this uh, parable, and, and if you remember, the word for uh, parable in Greek is parabole. Bole means to throw. Para means with. So you're throwing something beside in order to draw out a point. So what is this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho? Well, Augustine says the man represents Adam and all of humanity with him. So what happens with Adam taking this interpretation? So man went from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is a narrative of the fall, which would go back to, to Genesis 1. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So the man in, you know, Adam intended to, uh, you know, he sinned and he fell. And what happened, but he falls among robbers, who Augustine takes as the devil and all of his demons. And what happens, he is, man is stripped. He's stripped of the likeness of God that was w- within him. He's beaten down by concupiscence, and concupiscence is the inclination to sin, and he's left ultimately half dead. And if you remember, this half dead is definitely corresponds to Genesis, where God says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he's stripped of original holiness, he's beaten down by his own sinfulness, and now he's left half dead. Okay, so now we have all of fallen humanity. And so what are we going to do about this? So we have a priest... And notice that the priest isn't identified uh, with any particular religion. He's not identified at all. It's just a priest. So Augustine takes this as kind of like natural religion. And natural religion goes all the way from kind of the, you know, Greek gods to the Aztec, you know, you sacrifice people uh, type religions and everywhere in between. So natural religion itself, where man's trying to reach after God, uh, the priest was going down the road couldn't help him. 
Because what happens with natural religion is it's not efficacious. Ultimately, natural religion can't save man. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. And what were the Levites? But the Levites were the Mosaic law priests. So even the old law priests, the ones who would offer sacrifice in the temple. So remember Zechariah, John the Baptist, his family would have been uh, Levites. So the Levites themselves can't even help sinful man. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now, this would have been pretty insulting. I don't, I, we really can't feel the force of it now. But the Jews and the Samaritans absolutely despised each other. And there's very good reason for it. I can go into some of it now. So in the Davidic kingdom, uh, all 12 tribes of Israel would have been united of which the Jews were one of those tribes. There was also Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, there was Benjamin. And Samaria was the um, capital of those northern tribes. So Judah was the southern tribe. And the 10 northern tribes ended up splitting in the Davidic kingdom. There was a, uh, a secession, you could say, where the north and the south broke from each other. And they didn't go into civil war. The God wouldn't allow them to to go to civil war, but the northern tribes located in Samaria and further north eventually were deported by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were a very vicious empire, and they deported the Israelites, the northern Israelites, to all the nations. Now, a number of them were allowed, some of them were allowed to come back, and the ones that did come back had already been uh, intermarried with the pagans. And the Samaritans also wouldn't worship in Jerusalem in Jesus' day, but rather they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. This becomes important in John 4 when we talk about um, Jesus and the woman of Samaria. So to have the protagonist of this parable be a Samaritan is shocking. It would be shocking to the lawyer who's standing up saying, who's my neighbor? And it, it's the Samaritan that's the neighbor. Now, more about the Samaritans and why this is important. Uh, the Samaritans also, it, it, like I said, they were scattered among the nations, but the Assyrian policy was not to take uh, the people that they conquered and basically deport them and just kind of leave them and let them intermarry themselves. They actually forced the um, the Israelite women and men to intermarry with uh, pagan nations. So you, it's basically an assimilation policy. So the Babylonians did not have an assimilation policy. So when the Jews were deported to Babylon, they were still allowed to maintain their kind of character and their their um, their national identity, their ethnic identity as well, and therefore their religious identity. But the Assyrians would not allow that. And so the Samaritans that were in Palestine at the time of Christ uh, would have been of multi-lineage, where it would have been almost impossible to tell if someone was completely an Israelite, whether they were intermarried with some pagan element um, and because of that, their, their religion and their worship, because they worship on Mount Gerizim and not on Mount Zion with the rest of the Jews, um, they, uh, they would have been seen as, uh, to put it very bluntly, like half-breeds or like half-children of the promise, half the children of Israel, and also half-pagan. Now, let's see, let's go back to the allegorical interpretation then. Uh, we have a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So we have Adam and all of sin, all of humanity falling. He's going from the city of God to the city of man, to use Augustinian terms. 
He falls among robbers, Satan and his demons, who strip him of his likeness of God. They beat him down by concupiscence and inclination to sin, and he's left half dead without divine life. Natural religion is unable to help man. The priest going down the road had to pass by on the other side. The Levite, who's the Mosaic priest, had to pass by on the other side because the law could not save man. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, and who's the Samaritan? According to, to Augustine, it's Jesus himself because Jesus is fully God and fully man. He explodes the category. The Samaritan is half the child of sinful humanity and, and paganism. And, he, and the Samaritan is also half the child of promise. And so Christ assumes human nature, which is fallen, but he also is full divinity. And so Jesus himself, as he journeyed, came to where he was, saw him, had compassion, and bound his wounds. So he came to where he was. I mean, this is, uh, for Augustine, a clear indication of the incarnation. The Samaritan, instead of passing by, came to where he was. And Christ, in assuming our human flesh, actually becomes one with us, consubstantial with us, of one substance. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And the word for compassion here is, is, is very similar to the one that's going to be used for the passion of Christ. And so he has this passion on Christ, uh, the passion of Christ for humanity. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a weird uh, way to put band-aids and uh, neosporin, uh, oil and wine. That's quite a costly bandage. Um, but the father saw this as being very um, symbolic of the sacraments, especially the sacraments of initiation, where you pour on the baptismal oils along with the, the water for baptism and also the oil for uh, confirmation and the wine, obviously being a, a sign of the Eucharist. So those are the sacraments that bring you into Christ's mystical body. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And what's the inn? But the church. And so Christ doesn't just heal you and say, okay, later. Um, he's healed, but he takes him to the inn. And the next day he took out two denarii, and two denarii are a day's wages. But a denarii here uh, for Augustine would represent uh, confession and the Eucharist because these are the sacraments that we get to receive frequently, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And who are the innkeepers but uh, the church and specifically the clergy and the successors to the apostles, the bishops. Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So there's this note that Christ isn't just going to leave the man uh, you know, left for dead there. And, and, um, but there's a notion that he's going to come back. Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Okay. <laughs> and the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Okay. One of the reasons I absolutely love this is because, uh, you know, the lawyer stands up trying to put Jesus to the test. And then, you know, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a parable about all of salvation history. I mean, this is like a a brilliant allegory to, and I, you know, it steps beyond like, you know, things about literal sense, allegorical sense, spiritual sense. Like, I mean, this, this story, if it's not about human, like, I got to put this. Why am I fumbling with my words here? Uh, I see this interpretation not as optional. 
Like, I, I don't think Christ was telling the story and just came up with random characters in random places. Like I, and, and this is one of the things I want to assert with part of the series is that these, these spiritual interpretations or allegorical interpretations are literal in a sense in which this, like, how could you interpret this without, I mean, you can interpret it many different ways, but why would Jesus use Jerusalem? Why would you, he use specifically Jericho? Why would there be these really rich images of stripped and beat him, departed, leading, leaving him half dead? This triad of priest, Levite, Samaritan came to where he was, saw him, had compassion, bound up his wounds, oil and wine in an innkeeper. If it's not a story about all of salvation history, I really don't know how else to interpret this. And what was staggering to me is the richness of this story. I mean, it it it, it is it's the whole gospel wrapped up into this little package. And for what purpose? Well, this is a really, really good question. You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, well, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, great. But who's my neighbor? I mean, this is a question of utmost importance. And what is the answer to whose neighbor? Jesus is the neighbor. Now, this gets into to what Paul talks about, where he says, you know, you can't. It, it's hard to imagine that anyone would die for someone else. You know, that's that's quite an ask. One may even die for uh, a good man, but would anyone die for the righteous for the unrighteous? You know, and yet Christ, even in our sins, came and took sin, took sinful flesh to redeem us. So, whose neighbor? Like the Christian message is everyone's neighbor. Like Christ has made all our neighbor through him and that his redemption and his gospel message and the redemption that Christ has given us, the eternal life that he's here to offer is for all. It's not for some. And the Christian sees all as their neighbor. Either they are completely their neighbor in the fullness of ecclesial union or the graces that God has given to the world is is tending towards that ultimate uh, union in Christ. Yeah, this is a powerful story, and and I I hope this um, this serves as a gateway into looking into these things more. At least saying like, whoa, maybe there's more more here than I first see. Maybe there's more to these gospel messages than um, Good Samaritan shoots robber at gas station, or Good Samaritan hospital, or Good Samaritan laws. Um, and the gospel is is very demanding. It's extremely demanding, but at the same time, very encouraging. And um, so be neighbor, love God, love your neighbor as yourself.